BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Rich Roll, ultra Ironman, marathon man, extraordinaire. How are you? Good, James. Thanks for having me on your show. Rich, you have... A deep, dark past, and we're going to get into that, but, you're, but also you've done some amazing things since you've done what I'll describe as choosing yourself, but I was describing earlier to my 13-year-old who I was going to be talking to today, and I say, I told her you run all these ultra marathons. Maybe you can define first what an ultra marathon is. Yeah, sure. Uh, for those that don't know, an ultra marathon is essentially uh, a, any running race that's longer than a marathon, so longer than 26.2 miles. But after that, there's all kinds of distances. There's 50 milers, there's 100 milers, there's 135, 150 mile runs. Um, I actually specialize in ultra distance triathlon, which are triathlons that are longer than an Ironman. If people know, <laughs> if your if your guests know what an Ironman is. So so what's so uh, t- tell me about the, the five you did in seven days in Hawaii. How many, right. how many miles did you cover just with your so, p- raw physicality? Yeah, that was something I did in 2010 that, that a friend of mine and I tackled, and we called it Epic Five. And essentially what it was was attempting to do an Ironman a day, uh, five Ironmans on five Hawaiian islands, and complete it in five days. And an Ironman is... Um, a very long triathlon, which over the course of one day, you swim 2.4 miles, you ride your bike 112 miles, and then you celebrate by running a marathon. So we did five of those in a row, traveling island to island to island. It took us a little bit longer than five days, but we got it done in under a week. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so, Rich, just to be clear, you're my age. I, I don't know. When's your actual birthday, just since you're 47 years old and I'm 47 uh, years old? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually 48. Uh, my birthday's in October, so October 1966. Okay, so you're, you're slightly older than me. So uh, in 2010, um, that year was the first year I, I got a personal trainer, and uh-huh. I was able to do 30 push-ups. I like so. <laughs> it, man. That's pretty good. I was focused. I, I made the decision. I was focused on my body, but I wasn't going to go 700 miles in five days. That's for sure. 
So well, we all have we all have different ways that we choose ourselves, and we all have different ways that uh, I feel like we can express ourselves authentically. And you know, you have your avenue of doing it, and I have my avenue of doing it, and that's what makes the world go around, right? But but, Rich, you you're you really are an inspiration because, and I, I have so many questions. You you hit this point at the age of forty. Where and, and we'll get we'll get more into it. This is just intro. You hit this point at the age of forty where you could barely walk up a staircase. You were trapped in the cubicle being an entertainment lawyer, and you decided to make this big change that resulted in just a few years later, really, two, or two years later, you had, you you hadn't even had a, a bicycle before, and suddenly you were doing your first Ironman competition, and you were like a top finisher. And, uh, and, and that's just an amazing transformation. You're also a huge advocate for a plant-based diet, which, uh, an all plant-based diet, which is, which is amazing too, because people ask you all the time, like, well, where do you get your, your proteins? And you have an answer for that. You've written a, a beautiful book that I have right in front of me, The Plant Power Way. It's just beautiful photographs, recipes, great pictures of your, your family, your house. It's, it's really inspirational. Um, so I kind of wanted to give that overall intro of how uh, you transformed yourself. But I want to ask you now, what was going on? Like you mentioned briefly, um, I forgot if I read it in the book or on, on the blog or somewhere, but like in your early 30s or late 20s, you were really in kind of a, a dark spot after you graduated law school and became a lawyer. Mm-hmm. What was going on? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that I was sort of uh, my whole life had been premised on this idea of the American dream. You know, I I grew up in a very education oriented household where, um, you know, achievement and higher education were sort of synonymous. And and I think I had intuited my whole life this premise that if you study hard and get good grades and get into the best college and you know, then, you know, transfer all of that energy into the corporate world and, you know, arrive early and stay late and go the extra mile, uh, that eventually not only will you achieve this, you know, idea of the American dream, which is, you know, two cars in the garage and all of this, but that ultimately that held the promise of happiness. And I had done all of those things. I'd had, you know, I've had turmoil and struggles along the way, and we can get into a little bit about that. But but I was still, nonetheless, despite, you know, my struggles with drugs and alcohol, I was able to kind of play that game pretty well. You know, I went to Stanford. I was a swimmer at Stanford. I had an athletic background. I went to Cornell Law School and, and, and you know, got a great job at a prestigious Los Angeles law firm and was doing all of those things. And I was kind of on the precipice of having all that stuff. You know, I, I was on the partnership track in my law firm. Um, I'd met my wife. We were starting a family. We were building the house of our dreams. I had a Porsche in the driveway. I had, from the outside looking in, like a really great life. But inside, I felt like I was dying. You know, I mean, of course, I love my wife and my children, but I felt like I was living somebody else's life. Like this whole promise of the American dream just wasn't paying out for me. You know, and I looked around at the people I was working with, and, and they're nice people and good people, but I didn't really aspire to have any of their lives, and I felt like... Well, well, and let, let, let me ask you, was there, was there one moment of that? Because, so, so for 30 years or however long, or, or you, had, you had basically built up this mythology of what the American dream was, it doesn't just switch off like that. Like, when did you kind of get, repro- you know sort of reprogram yourself to think that this is not the American dream or was it a gradual process? 
it was a, it was a gradual process, but I think it's that thing where, you know, suddenly you find yourself living, you know, someone else's life and, and, but you're so invested in it. So how do you then break free of that or do something different? And I think, you know, if there was one concrete moment, it was probably, you know, when I spent, when I did my 100 day stint in, in rehab. Uh, How old were you? I was uh, 31 at the time. And, And what happened that led you to go to rehab? Well, I'm one of those guys who, who, uh, who, who pretty much realized he was an alcoholic from the very first drink. You know, I was a, I was a very much a work hard, play hard kind of guy. And, you know, I was the guy who was always the last person to leave the party. I was always the guy who got the most drunk. And, you know, what starts out as kind of fun in college, you know, kind of turns on you if you're an alcoholic. And it, it wasn't long before, you know, it took me to some pretty dark places. And it's a progressive disease. Um, and for many years, I was able to kind of still manage my life and get away with it, although I was living this sort of double life existence. Um, but eventually, you know, it catches up to you and, and a lot of bad stuff started happening in my life. I was getting DUIs. I was going to jail. My, the people that I work with knew what I was doing. And, and, you know, I got to that point where, you know, I was literally drinking vodka tonics in the shower in the morning before going to my corporate law firm job. Like, oh, it was, my God. It was, it was bad, you know, and I it, was blacking out and just doing it was it was a it was a nasty situation. Were, were you worried you were going to get fired or you were going to even get disbarred because you were going to jail? I was terrified. I mean, I had a moment where I'd been arrested uh, at like three in the morning, driving the wrong way down a one-way street in Beverly Hills, and I was, you know, was put in jail. And the arresting officer confiscated my belongings, and he saw my business card. And ironically, the partner to whom I reported happened to represent the Beverly Hills Police Department in a variety of matters. And this officer knew my boss and called him and said, "Hey, I picked up your boy." And so my boss knew what was going on, and I thought I was going to, yeah, I thought I might get disbarred. I certainly thought I was going to get fired. And ultimately, uh, him and the firm with whom I worked for was supportive when I had that kind of moment of clarity and realized that not only that I needed help, because, you know, of course I needed help. I was, you know, I was in a bad way, but that I was finally really willing and, and able to accept that help. And in my case, that took the form of, you know, going up to rural Oregon and, and settling into, you know, rehab existence, uh, which, you know, in in today's day and age is sort of, you know, you hear about people going to rehab all the time. But in truth, it really is a mental institution. You know, my best thinking got me institutionalized. But to your point, James, uh, you know, that experience, it didn't just save my life. It was my first kind of introduction to um, a few sort of core spiritual principles about how to live your life. And it helped me kind of rethink and, and reframe what I was doing. And I remember early on in that experience when a counselor said to me, uh, he asked me a question. He said, Rich, are you a human having a spiritual experience or, uh, or are you uh, a spiritual being having a human experience? And I just looked at him like baffled. Like I, I didn't even understand the question, you know, but that was sort of, sort of the starting point for me in terms of kind of questioning what I was doing and starting to think more broadly about it. That's interesting because if you think about a question like that, there really is no answer. Like the answer uh, doesn't quite mean anything, but at the very least, uh, it, it, just thinking about the question takes you out of the path of school, law firm, house, family, two cars, retirement, death. It kind of makes you question, is there another path? 
To be sure. Um, to be sure. I mean, just to, just to grapple with that, you know, I think is, is an important thing to do because it does. It, it makes you take uh, sort of a, a landscape, you know, 10,000 foot view on what it is exactly that you're doing. And it helps kind of put things into perspective. At least that's what it did for me. And, and was your uh, wife supportive during this period? Like, was she kind of there for you? Um, I met my wife after I had a year of sobriety. So she wasn't okay. around for that, that period of time. Okay, because it seems like from the beginning she's like a very healthy lifestyle, and she was she was ready for you to come over to the healthy lifestyle side. It seems. Yeah, for sure, for sure, she's certainly the healthier one in our relationship equation, and that's there's no question about that. Well, and just to be fair, though, and I don't think I said this before, uh, uh, you're like ranked among like the fittest people in the world, so that's saying a lot about your wife too. Well, I mean, she's, you know, I'm where I'm at because of her. And I really believe that, you know, it's her example and her belief in me that has allowed me to kind of, you know, step into the person that I think she always saw underneath all of my density. And by density, I don't just mean physical weight, like just this sort of, you know, burden that that I was carrying around about what I was supposed to be doing. You know, she always believed that that I could unlock, you know, that better version of myself. And, and she held and she held that belief. And that's ultimately, you know, it's a longer story. But ultimately, you know, that was absolutely essential in, in me kind of stepping into this new way of living, this well, choose self idea, I guess you could call it. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's what I want to I want to build towards because so you, you do the rehab at 31, but it's not until 40 that you're like, you're feeling so just physically bloated and unhealthy. You 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 couldn't even or or, or as the rich roll you know story goes, uh, you couldn't even make your way up a staircase without breathing heavily. And that's when you start making this big change. But obviously, during these nine years between thirty-one and forty, big things were happening to you. Like if you could look at a video of yourself from let's say now, to, and and you look at a video of yourself at the age of thirty-five. Like, what would be going through your head right now? Uh, I mean, there, it's two different people completely. I mean, physically, mentally, emotionally. I mean, everything about how I live and, and what I, you know, what I do on a daily basis looks nothing like what I was doing then. And like, what was, what was a day like at the age of 35? And this is after rehab. So you were already on some sort of path after rehab, but before your real big changes. Like, what, what, yeah. what was a day in the life at, at age 35? Sure. So, you know, the first thing is, is that when I got out of rehab, I was just so hell bent on trying to repair all the wreckage that I had created as a result of my drinking and using. So my priority was creating a solid foundation of sobriety and then, you know, kind of getting back everything that I lost. So I, I, I compensated um, by throwing myself into work um, and not taking care of myself physically. So I'm working the 80 hour weeks trying to, you know, kind of uh, regain everybody's respect um, by being the guy that, you know, would show up when he said he would show up and, you know, follow through and on things that he committed to and would look you in the eye when he talked to you. And, you know, I was determined to, you know, I'd had this, I'd had this, you know, negative thing that had happened to me. And I, I felt like I had to overcompensate to overcome that. And at the same time, despite, you know, being sober, in retrospect, looking back, I think that I, um, I think I transferred a lot of my addictive tendencies onto diet and lifestyle habits. So I, you know, I was subsisting on what I like to call the window diet. Like if you drive your car up to a, 
fine dining establishment and can roll down the window and they hand you food, that's basically what I was eating. So tons of fast food and, you know, lots of, you know, Chinese food takeout at the law firm and, and, and things of that nature. And, you know, when you're young, you can, you can get away with that stuff to some extent, but it starts to catch up to you as you start to inch towards 40. And so it was a gradual process of becoming more and more lethargic, more and more of a couch potato, you know, packing on, you know, the five to 10 pounds a year. Uh, and, and also kind of, you know, progressing in this certain state of denial about what I was doing. Like I would still look in the mirror and think that I was that 20 year old, you know, fit swimmer guy from Stanford. And I wasn't able to really kind of see myself as I was actually living. Okay. So, so fast forwarding 13 years, what exactly did you do today? So it's, it's, it's one on the West coast. What, what time did you wake up this morning? Well, I just got back from I, I just got back from Texas. I was speaking at a, at a huge health conference in Texas where I gave four talks over wow. the weekend about health and fitness and diet and nutrition and all these things. So the idea that I get up in front of large groups of people, I mean, in this case, it was a you know a crowd of six hundred people and gave an hour long keynote about my story and my life and how I changed it. I mean, if you had told me at age thirty five that that's what I was going to be doing, I would have said you are absolutely insane. So, 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 so this is really interesting because 35 is often an age where people feel like it's, it's too late for them. Like they, they either have found their, their calling and vocation in life or they haven't. And here you've done a, a complete 180 degree turn in, in that time since then. And, you know, it's unbelievable the change. Yeah. Not only that though, I mean, I think it's important to also, you know, place it in context to the extent that. You know, this is not something that I mapped out on a piece of paper and said, I'm going to get from there to here. Like this has been, um, you know, the things that have happened to me really are a result of me making a decision to uh, invest in myself and and start to uh, pursue the things that I was passionate about without necessarily any plan in place about what that was going to look like professionally. Like I just started moving in that direction. And these it's almost like the universe conspired to meet me where I was. And, and the opportunities that I now have are a direct result of, of just sort of deciding that I wasn't going to play the game that I had been playing it. I was going to do it a different way. And I had no idea what that would mean or where that would lead me. Well, I think, I think that's a key thing is the deciding to – what you just said was the most important thing is deciding to invest in yourself. That's almost – the only thing you have to do, like, because right. because then, like you say, then the universe conspires after that. As long as you're putting in the work, you know, things will happen um, to, to make it work for you. It's true, but that can also come off as sounding a little sort of pithy or contrite. Like, you know, okay, I, 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 I agree. My, yeah, I mean, in my case, like it was difficult, man. You know, I had plenty of you know, dark moments of the soul wondering what it was that I was doing. You know, when I made the decision, you know, we didn't even get into the part about like, you know, what happened and what made me change my change, you know, this path in a concrete way. But, but when I started training for Ultraman, you know, I was still working as a lawyer and trying to make a living. And I just felt compelled that I needed to, you know, do this thing. And it didn't seem responsible, you know, and, 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 and there would be moments where we were essentially broke and I've got kids and, you know, I thought I'm being a terrible dad. And my wife, again, to go back to her as the rock, she was like, you need to go out and train. This is what you need to do. Like, I don't know why, 
but it's very obvious to me that this is something that, 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 you know, you need to express in your life. And I want you to go out and do that. And I don't want you to worry about, you know, what's going on, you know, right now, because we will be able to meet those challenges and solve them. But the most important thing is that you're engaged in what you're passionate about right now. And so I, I want to get into that moment, but I also want to point out again, obviously the importance of having people around you. It's not just being physically healthy. It's being emotionally healthy, being the sort of person that people like that will be around you and supportive of you and, and, you know, ready to help. Yeah. I mean, water rises to its own level. Right. Um, and I think that, uh, you, you know, whatever challenge it is that you're trying to pursue in your life, entrepreneurial or interpersonal or whatever, um, you know, I think health is extremely important and I mean health in the most comprehensive sound sense, you know, I mean, Good health starts with what's on your plate, but you know if you want to truly be well, that means you know a balanced approach to your 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 mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, um, and your spiritual health, and 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 redressing all of those things, I think, is is uh, is crucial to being able to you know express your your best, most authentic self. And you know you can be eating a great diet, but if you're bonkers insane, you know how healthy are you truly? And you know, in my case, I did a lot of interpersonal work. Like I had to really, you know, look at myself in the mirror and, and, and tackle, you know, some behavioral aspects of how I was living that weren't comfortable and, and, and weren't fun to kind of, you know, pick apart. So, so, so at the age of 40, you're, you're, you know, again, as the story goes, you're going up this, this staircase. I'm almost thinking this is, you should like, bring this staircase with you to every house you ever move into. It's like <laughs> so important to your story. So you're going up this staircase, you can't breathe. And now this is like the moment. So what, what happens? What's going through your mind? And what was the first thing you did? So, yeah, I'd been working late. I picked up a bag of cheeseburgers on the way home. I got home. My family was asleep. You know, I plopped on the couch. I start doing what I usually do late at night, which is like, you know, watch Law and Order reruns or something stupid like that. So you were just in a, you were just in a law firm all day, and now you're going to watch a law firm on TV. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, it's like <laughs> you know, it, that's where I was at. And as I started to doze off, you know, I said, oh, "I got to go to bed." And I started making my way, you know, up the staircase to our bedroom. And I had to pause halfway up a flight of stairs. I was 39 years old. I, I was going to be turning 40 soon, um, and I was winded. I was out of breath. I like buckled over. I had tightness in my chest and I started to get beads of sweat on my forehead. And it was a panicked moment where I thought I might be having a heart attack. And it was really scary. You know, my mom would always say to me, you got to watch out for your heart. You know, heart disease runs in our family. You got to be careful about these kinds of things because her father, who I'm named after, uh, his name was Richard Spindle, much like me, he'd been a champion swimmer when he was young. He was captain of the University of Michigan swim team. He was an Olympic hopeful. Uh, he never smoked. He was never overweight. And he continued to stay fit and active his whole life. But he died of a heart attack when he was 54. Right. And my mom was in college, certainly long before I was born. Um, and that was very, you know, that was a traumatic event in her life, obviously. And, and, you know, I never really thought about it. You know, you just don't think about that kind of stuff when you're young. But that all kind of snapped into focus for me in that in that very, you know, crystallized, you know, uh, moment that evening. Um, and it was it was it was a moment that that reminded me a lot of the morning that I woke up and decided it's time to go to rehab, like that moment of clarity. Um, 
And I think that, that, you know, it really reminded me just how potent these moments can be. Like if you, if you're lucky enough to have a moment like that in your life and you can make a decision, you could change your life. You know, like in the moment I decided to get sober, I was in enough pain where I was willing to do something different. I made a decision and my life was irrevocably altered for the better forever. And I think when I was on the staircase, it occurred to me that this was another such moment where I had a very slim window of opportunity to make a decision that would allow me to change and live differently. But if I didn't take it seriously and immediately implement some kind of specific new direction, that it would quickly pass and I'd be back to my status quo. So the heightened kind of aspect of that moment, I think, and my ability to kind of capture it and do something about it was informed because I had had that prior experience. That's interesting. So the fact that you had, because there are two different types of intense experiences. One where you completely removed yourself from your environment for 100 days in order to kind of literally clean out the toxins in your system, both physically and emotionally and so on. And this other one is more about uh, habit than addiction. Um, where you still have to go back to your normal, quote-unquote, normal life, but at the same point, you have to uh, change it to have a healthier lifestyle. That's, in some ways, more difficult because it, it requires overcoming these deep-set habits, like like having this window diet, for instance. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, whereas when you get sober – you know, there's there's a clear demarcation line between using drugs and not using drugs uh, with respect to diet. Well, you still have to eat. Right. Right. But, but I think because I had done so much interpersonal work and, I, and and the tools that I kind of intuited through recovery were very helpful in helping me um, create some new uh, habits and rules around what I was going to do with respect to food and exercise. Well, so, so like the next day, I assume you let your, your wife sleep and stuff while you were going through this, uh, heart attack. But like the <laughs> next, the next day, did you, did you like say, okay, I'm in, make quinoa for breakfast or whatever? Like what did you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, however you say it. It, it kind of was like that. Like I, I was too embarrassed to actually tell my wife what had occurred. And and I think this brings up a, an interesting kind of relationship issue, which is, you know, for like I said, I mean, my wife was always the healthier one in our equation. She wasn't completely plant based at the time, but she was very health conscious. And and you know, she's the person who's always reading spiritual books and going to yoga and doing all these kinds of things. And you know, I'm the guy who's watching Law and Order and like you know, eating the window diet. And she had you know, for several years, tried to uh, you know expand my awareness by putting books on my bedside table or saying maybe you should look at this or maybe you shouldn't do that. And I think she got progressively more and more frustrated when I wasn't biting. You know, I just it wasn't working her approach. And she got to a point where because of the kind of interpersonal work that she's done where she faced a decision, which was I can continue to try to get this guy to change or I can just decide, like, I'm going to love him exactly who he is and I don't need him to be any different. Like he's you know, he's going to be who he is. And uh, I'm going to let it go. And not in a perfunctory way. Like she really got to a place where she believed that. Like she was cool. Like she didn't – she wasn't going to put anything on me and she really let it go. And I think I felt that void, you know. And when she 
was no longer trying to get me to be different, suddenly it made me able to see myself more clearly and think, oh, like, this is on me. Like, what do I want for my life? Like, what? Not, not for someone else or because somebody else wants me to be something other than I am, but what is it that I want? And I think it helped me kind of confront um, some of these things. But Yeah, because if you think about it, like after you got back from, and I apologize for interrupting, I tend to interrupt too much right. on the podcast, uh, but when you got back from rehab, your first instinct w- was, even though you had done this amazing transformative thing for your life, your first instinct was, how can I get back in favor with the people I disappointed? So you were still kind of outward focused on these other people who had these expectations on you. And it was almost your wife removing expectations that allowed you to, to ask yourself what you expect, what you fully expect from yourself, what would be a life for you? Right. I think that's very astute. And, you know, certainly people pleasing is, is, you know, one of my behavioral defects that, you know, probably, you know, didn't help. And it's been a process of trying to grapple with and overcome that. But, but yeah, so that's where it started. And, and, uh, you know, from there I did a seven day, like fruit and vegetable juice cleanse that was horrific for a couple of days. I felt like, um, you know, by the fifth, sixth, seventh day of that, I felt a resurgence in vitality that I couldn't remember ever experiencing since I was a kid. And so, so it took, it took the first three days were horrible. And then the, like by fifth day, five or day six, what, what exactly did you feel? Cause I've never done this. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, look, being kind of a logic, rational minded person, you know, when somebody says, well, you're going to drink like fruit and vegetable juice and this is going to detox you. I mean, my reaction to that is like, what do you mean detox me? Like, what are the toxins that we're talking about? And how is drinking vegetable juice going to have any impact on that? Like, I didn't really understand it. But I think the, the important thing was that I was willing to try something different. You know, I was willing to just say, you know what, what I'm doing is not working. Here's something that I can do. I'm going to set aside my logical, you know, rational mind. And I'm just going to do this just to kind of shift my energy. And yeah, the first couple of days I was buckled over on the couch. I felt like I was detoxing off heroin. It was terrible. I had no energy. I couldn't move. Um, and uh, it just got a little bit better and better. I mean, if there's one thing I know how to do, it's weather a detox. And I knew if I just stuck with it, that things would change. And Why did you know that? Like, why? Because I've detoxed off drugs and alcohol so many times that I know when you're feeling horrible and you think it's never going to end, that if you just continue to stick with it, that, you know, the fog will clear. And so who who was making the juices? Were you making the juices? What what was in these juices? (laughs) I want to know uh, so I can start it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think I'm trying to remember exactly what we did, but it was like progressively weaning myself off of solid food and getting more and more kind of just liquid oriented. I know that Julie made this broth made out of beets and, and certain kind of herbs and vegetables in it. And then I would juice, you know, fresh greens and and juices. And and I was on this protocol where like every, you know, I don't know, hour, hour and a half, I would take something in. Um, And I think I was on, I think I did, there's a guy called the Herb Doc, Dr. Schulze. He had like a liver detox, like seven day program. I think that's what I did at the time. I'm trying to remember. But in any event. Is it dangerous uh, at all? Like if you do it wrong, could you... Probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, what you see out here in Los Angeles is people that do the lemon water and cayenne pepper kind of thing where they're they're basically just starving themselves. And I don't recommend that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's people that do, you know, juice fast for many, many days longer than seven days. 
Um, you know, I think that, you know, I was never, I was always getting nutrients in. It just was in the form of liquids as opposed to solid food. What, what if I just always took like uh, all, uh, enough greens and, and seeds and nuts to get protein and throw in some fruits in there uh, to get a little sweetness, use a juicer or a blender, make, make juice and just do that all day long, every day for seven days. You think that would be equivalent? Uh, yeah, it would be close. It would be close. Um, you know, I think that I could talk to you later about specifics of that, but, um, but yeah, I think that's a good place to start. I mean, I think it's important to make sure that you're getting certain micronutrients and phytonutrients and that you're hydrating and all of that. Um, but I think there, you know, there's many ways to kind of slice, slice and dice that. Um, but I'd be happy to talk to you about that. And then, so, so after day seven, you've done, you've done this cleansing now, are you, are you feeling like lighter? Did you lose weight in the seven days? Like what happened? Yeah. I mean, I lost some weight and, uh, at the end of seven days, I just was, I, I had like mental clarity. I had amazing energy, this like resurgence in vitality. And it was, it was kind of an amazing experience. You know, it reminded me of, of, you know, what Hippocrates said in whatever it was, like 340 BC, like, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, that kind of like really uh, made me understand that there truly is an equation between the foods that you're eating and, and how you're feeling. And it's kind of academic and elementary, but I don't know that I'd ever really thought about that, let alone truly experienced it. And so, you know, that experience led me to kind of say, wow, you know, the human body is pretty freaking resilient because I'd abused myself with horrible lifestyle habits and the window diet and drugs and alcohol, all this kind of stuff for so long, like most of my adult life. And here in a mere seven days, I felt like a completely different person. So then it became about like, all right, well, you know, like maybe I'll just keep juicing forever. You know, my alcoholic mind is like, I'm never going back to food, but course you got to start eating so then it became about like trying to find a way to eat so i could continue to feel this good and that 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 involved like a lot of self-experimentation before i kind of ended up where where i am now and that's that's difficult because like i even i even tell my wife like i can't it's hard for me to go grocery shopping with her because you know there's there's 18 aisles of junk food and then there's one aisle here with vegetables and another aisle here with fresh fish which i enjoy and but i'm tempted on those 18 aisles in the middle like i can't go into a grocery store without leaving with something so i know how do you do it it's it's become it's become really difficult i mean it's crazy that that you know the whole foods are relegated to the far you know like siberia in our gigantic grocery stores. I mean, when did grocery stores become the size of Walmart? I mean, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, 90% of them are those middle aisles where everything is packaged, everything is processed, everything is, you know, sort of high in salt, sugar, or fat. And, you know, there's a really interesting book by uh, Michael Morris. I don't know if you read it. It's called Salt, Sugar, Fat. No, I haven't read that. He looks at the big food companies and and he kind of draws this analogy to big tobacco in the 70s in the sense that these, these giant food companies are pouring tons of dollars into scientific research and marketing in order to kind of really specifically and scientifically devise these foods that activate the pleasure centers in our brain to create that addictive response. So it becomes very difficult to say no to those, you know, and to stick to those aisles and to focus on the fresh produce or 
you know, opt to go to the farmer's market instead. So I'm, you know, I'm empathetic and, you know, I, I, I listen, you know, I consider myself a food addict and I, I know what that's like. So, so, so yeah, so it takes a while to, you know, kind of find what you want, what, what, what works for you and then build the habit of not slipping back into the window diet. Like how many days do you feel it took you before you knew for sure you weren't going to slip back into uh, an unhealthy diet? And then, and then, and basically what made you settle on kind of the plant power approach? Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't an overnight thing. And I think there's this idea that people can like switch their diet overnight and, and never look back. And if you can do that, more power to you. I mean, in my case, you know, it was a good six months of playing around with different things. And I was kind of settling on this vegetarian diet for a while, which was very much a junk food vegetarian diet and kind of mental games that I would play with myself. What's, what's a junk food men- vegetarian diet, like pancakes well, like, for breakfast? Yeah, I mean, and you can, you can get, uh, I mean, you can order uh, a pizza from Pizza Hut, and as long as you don't put pepperoni or sausage on it, like that's vegetarian, right? right. But I, I don't think anybody would say that that's a healthy thing to eat. Right. So, you know, you can eat potato chips and Oreos all day long and that's vegetarian, but certainly not healthy. And I think, right. you know, as you see the kind of proliferation of whole foods markets and, and this interest in, you know, kind of vegan diets, you're seeing more and more meat analogs and vegetarian or vegan or vegetarian alternatives to foods that we like to eat. So coconut ice cream and, you know, sort of vegan butters and vegan mayonnaises and all these sorts of things. And I think they're great as transition foods, but it's easy to fall into the trap that they're super healthy because they don't have animal products in them. And, and, and that's where I think you can get into trouble. So, so, okay, take a typical day for you now. Like, let's say tomorrow. You'll wake up what time? Uh, I usually wake up sometime between 7 and 8. Okay, and then what will you do first? Will you exercise or will you eat? Yeah, I mean, I work out in the morning. Sometimes I just go out and train right away, but more often than not, I'll start my day with a with a green smoothie uh, and our and our Vitamix blender, and that usually is a lot of kale, some spinach, maybe a half a beet, some hemp seeds, some chia seeds, some ground flax seeds, some berries, maybe a little bit of fruit, but. It's really just a lot of dark leafy greens is how I like to start the day. And that, that gets me kind of out the door with like some really, you know, good energy. And, and, and how, how long it, does it take you from beginning to end to make this for yourself? I mean, that takes me five minutes. Okay. It's really, you know, I mean, I, and, and look, I got four kids. When I open up the refrigerator, like I never know what I'm going to have and what I'm going to be run, run out of, you know. So more often than not, I'm improvising based on what we happen to have in the refrigerator. So it's not the same thing every day. And, and I think that's important, too. People always ask me, like, well, what's the ultimate smoothie or what is, you know, what is it exactly that you're doing? And, you know, it's different. It's different every day. It's variations on a theme. But, um but, you know, the exact specifics of it tend to, you know, change. Okay, so, so, so you have a smoothie. Now you're going to go out and train. How, and and uh, we didn't get into this yet, but uh, obviously between the ages of 40 and 42, you got massively into running. So I assume uh-huh. you're, that's your workout is, is running? Uh, it's, it's either running, swimming, or cycling, uh, or maybe a little bit of gym work or yoga. And it's different. Um, like right now it's different than it was when I was preparing for those crazy races. So right now it's a little more modest, but I do try to get something done every day, um, before I start my work day. And 
you know, that's usually a bike ride, which during the week could be anywhere from two to four hours or a run. That's usually about an hour and a half to two hours or a swim. That will be like an hour and a half. Okay. So, and then you're, and then you, you come back and do you have another smoothie just because to, to re re-energize? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, what I'll do is I'll make that Vitamix and then I, I won't drink the whole thing. I'll drink like, you know, a quarter of it or half of it. And then I put the rest in the thermos and then I take that with me. So I have it with me, you know, in Los Angeles, you're driving around. I have, I keep all my training stuff in my truck. So wherever I am, you know, I can, I can, if I have a free hour, I can get out and do a run or something like that. And I hmm. try to keep healthy foods in my car all the time. So I'll have a thermos of smoothie and then I'll have some healthy snacks, like I'll have some bananas or, you know, an apple or some almonds or something like that. So after I work out, I just kind of graze on that kind of stuff until lunch. And then lunch is usually a huge salad with, you know, a giant salad, like a giant bowl quite often. Um, and then I snack throughout the day on fruits and nuts and things like that. And then, you know, dinner is, uh, I mean, you saw the cookbook. It's any number of those kinds of things that my wife, who's a phenomenal chef, uh, makes for our family. Yeah, it all looks great. Like, I really just, and the photos are beautiful. Like, every dish looks great. I definitely recommend people get this book. Uh, we're going to be trying the recipe, or every recipe in this book. So so it looks great. So, so uh how did you get into the running after, you know, so, so you, so you got, you got kind of on the vibe of the diet, but then how did you get into the particular type of workout and competitions that you were going to be into? So what happened was after playing around with kind of a junk food vegetarian diet for a while, I, I I'd kind of run my course with healthy eating because I wasn't losing any weight. My energy levels went back down from that juice cleanse and I was kind of at my wits end and I was ready to give up. Uh, and then I thought, well, I'm eating vegetarian. This doesn't really seem to be working, but what if I got rid of the dairy and what if I got rid of all this processed food that I'm eating that I'm tricking myself into believing is healthy when I know, you know, that it's not. Um, and so I decided to give that a go and my expectations were nominal at best. I didn't think it would really make any difference. And I think I was hoping that it wouldn't work. Like I just thought, well, if I do this, and it doesn't work, then I can go back to eating cheeseburgers and I can say that I tried everything. <laughs> you know? That was your secret That was wish. my agenda. That was my agenda. And, uh, and what happened was within seven to 10 days of eating what I didn't know was called at the time a whole food plant-based diet, I felt like I felt on that seventh day of the juice cleanse, like that, that goal of trying to get back to that place of having that elevated level of, you know, energy and vitality returned. And I thought, wow, I, I can't believe it. Like I'm, I've, I've, I've literally eliminated all the things that my whole life I've been taught were the things that you need to like sort of be strong and healthy and fit. Like, you know, beef is what's for dinner. You need to eat meat for strong muscles and, you know, milk does a body good and you need milk for strong bones. And here I was, I'd removed all those things and I felt better than I, than I could remember. And so that's when I realized I was onto something. And, and, and I, I had so much energy, James, that, that I started exercising again, not because I had some idea of returning to becoming a competitive athlete, but I, I, I was having trouble sitting still. Like my foot was tapping. I'd sit down on my computer at my desk and, and I just, I felt like I was, my body was like kind of vibrating. Like I, I just felt compelled to go out outdoors and move my body. And, and, and that's really how it began. And meanwhile, you were still officially a lawyer. Yes, very much so. And did anyone at the workplace, like how did you, everyone goes out to work at, at the law firm where they order, you know, 
hamburgers or whatever. Like, how did you kind of like uh, separate yourself from the pack there? Um, it was tricky at first, but I was def- I was I was committed, and uh, and I think what I realized pretty quickly early on is that most people are 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 you you have this idea like when you get sober, like, Oh my God, what am I going to do when I go to the bachelor party and I'm not going to drink? Like everyone's going to ask me why and all of that. And then you kind of have that experience and you realize actually no one really cares. You know, people are more self-obsessed <laughs> than you realize. And yeah, there's some kind of social niceties or some, you know, little kind of things that you got to work around when you go to a restaurant, but it's actually, I found it to be not as hard as I built it up to be in my mind. And, you know, nowadays everybody knows that's, how I eat and it's, it's no big deal. Um, but initially I had trepidation and fear around that, but, but, you know, I realized that my friends don't really care. Like they might, they might joke or, or, you know, give me a little bit of grief or whatever, but it turned out to be no big deal. So, so I, I have naive questions. Like, so if you go to a restaurant, uh, I think most salads in restaurants really taste horribly. Like what, what do you order in a restaurant? Well, it depends on what restaurant that, that you're going to. Um, I found that uh, pretty much almost every restaurant I've ever been to, I've been able to get something um, that's going to satisfy me. It might not always be the best thing, depending upon where I am or you know what I would luck- prefer to be eating, but mm-hmm. I can always make do. Um, so there are a variety of strategies. I mean, listen, if you're in a work context and, and everybody's going to the steakhouse for you know the big closing dinner, like, what are you going to do? And knowing that there's probably not going to be too much that, that, that you're going to be able to eat. Well, one thing I would do is I probably eat like, uh, I, I might eat, you know, before I go to the dinner. So I'm not starving and that way I'm not tempted to make a bad choice. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, I can get baked potatoes, I can get a salad, I can get steamed vegetables over rice or anything like that. And, and the last thing I want to be is like the guy who's a pain in the butt. He's right. like, ordering off the menu and kind of being annoying to everybody. Like that's my biggest fear. So, so, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, so one thing I would do is I'll just excuse myself from the table. I'll go find the waiter. Like I'll just say I'm going to the bathroom and then I'll find the waiter and I'll just say, listen, this is my situation. Uh, you know, what do you think you guys could make? Do you guys have rice or vegetables? Maybe you can make me a big salad or, you know, some baked potatoes or some, some potatoes or something like that. And almost invariably, like, they're like, yeah, no problem. You know, they'll work something up. And, and sometimes the chef is, he's happy to do it because he's sick of making the same thing all the time. And so I don't like to draw attention to myself in that context. Like, I'll just kind of do it subtly. And, you know, it generally works out fine. So, so here's naive question number two. Um, you know, if you talk to like, let's say the pure paleo diet people, they're, they get kind of upset about fruits because there's sugar. Uh, what's, what's the story of sugar and fruits? Well, we can go around the merry-go-round on that, uh, you know, time and time again, and the, the sort of age-old, you know, vegan paleo arguments, and there's a lot of muckraking going on. Uh, I think that the, in truth, the paleos and the vegans have more in common than they have uh, differences, and I'm always trying to bridge that gap. Um, but I would say with respect to fruit, uh, I love fruit. I eat tons of fruit. Um, I have friends that are fruitarian. All they eat is fruit. And some of them are some of the most extraordinary athletes I've ever met. And they're all super trim and fit. Uh, fruit has a tremendous amount of fiber in it. And, 
And I think it's an extremely healthy uh, food that's high in micronutrients and phytonutrients. So I have no problem whatsoever with, with, with eating fruit. I say knock yourself out. I eat tons of it. Um, I think that fruit juice is a different matter because you've extracted all the fiber uh, mm. from the whole food and you are getting a higher dose of sugar. But in the context, like in the matrix of the food itself, I think it's an extremely healthy option. And I'm, so I'm not... I'm not a low carb person. Um, right. You mentioned potatoes and rice. Yeah. 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 I mean, I find that, that when I'm eating, you know, a wide variety of vegetables and fruits and some whole grains and nuts and seeds that nature sort of takes care of, of everything else. And, you know, I've been doing this for eight years now and I've been able to transform my body from, you know, schlubby 50 pound overweight guy to, uh, you know, a guy who's doing things athletically that I never dreamed I thought I would be able to do. And I've been able to maintain the diet without being overly fixated on, you know, calories or a percentage of carbs to protein and all of that kind of stuff. Well, so, so and this leads to my, my final naive question, but then I want to hit the workout, the, the marathon stuff. Uh, you know, as someone who you were eating all these cheeseburgers and junk food and all that stuff, that's a big change just for your taste buds to mm-hmm. kale. And yeah. like, I just don't like vegetables that much. <laughs> like, and I would love to like it. Like my, my wife is like your wife. Like she'll eat healthy. She does yoga. She's always inspires me to be healthier and, and has inspired me to be healthy over the past five or six years since I met her. But I just, I just don't really like vegetables all that much is, is my problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you, man. I hear you. I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I think cravings are, you know, a tricky thing. Uh, but what, my, what I've discovered and the more kind of I've looked into this is, is how, f- how fluid cravings can be. You know, for me, there's a lot of popular diets out there that allow you to have like a cheat day, like once a week you can eat whatever you want. And uh, I, I don't think that I could ever do that because – if you told me I could eat, uh, you know, Wendy's cheeseburgers once a week, I would spend six days obsessing about the day that I would get to eat the Wendy's cheeseburger. So right. I would remain a prisoner to that like craving. And for me, the only way to put that to bed and behind me is to really completely break free. So I'm not beholden to it anymore. And that requires, you know, a little discomfort. There's a couple weeks where you're kind of, you grapple with these cravings, but then they dissipate. You know, that's been my experience with drugs and alcohol, and that's been my experience with food. And there's some really interesting um, studies that are coming out right now about the microbiome, about your gut ecology, and the relationship of, of uh, that ecology to the cravings that we have. So, in essence, what they've determined is that somehow, and I'm not sure exactly how this mechanism works, but but the microorganisms in your GI tract somehow can trigger your nervous system to compel you to crave certain foods. Uh, and it sounds crazy and fantastical, but it's actually quite extraordinary. So the example that I always use is um, that documentary, Supersize Me. You, you yes. probably saw that, right? So. If you remember, uh, Morgan Spurlock, like he's like, I don't know, two or three days into his 30-day McDonald's uh, diet, and there's that scene where, where uh, he throws up out the window of his car, like he can't, can't believe he's going to has to continue to eat McDonald's food, and it's making him so sick. 
And then you fast forward like two or three weeks later, and he wakes, there's a scene where he wakes up in the morning, he feels horrible, he just has no energy, he just feels terrible. And then he goes to McDonald's, he gets his McDonald's breakfast, and then he's like, I feel great, right? So how does that change occur? And there's evidence to suggest that that maybe what happened is, is he has replaced the healthy gut flora in his GI tract because previous to that he was eating his girlfriend's food and she was a vegan chef um, with the gut flora that feeds on McDonald's food, right? So the foods that you eat then repopulate that GI tract. So if you're eating cheeseburgers all day, you're populating your GI tract with, with, with microorganisms that need that kind of food in order to live. And so somehow they harness your nervous system and trigger your brain to say, give me more of that. And that's what you crave. You start to replace those foods with healthy foods. You're starting to repopulate your GI tract with a different quality of gut flora. And that, in turn, can have an impact on your craving. So that's a very long way of saying if you just start eating more healthy foods and you start to kind of feel that, um, that connection between how you feel when you eat those foods, um, and the more you do it, then your taste buds uh, begin to shift. And yeah, I mean, I didn't think that I would crave kale salad, but I actually do now, as weird as that sounds. Well, well it's interesting because, uh, you know, so there's this neurotransmitter serotonin, which is mostly in the gut, and yet it's very strongly linked to, uh, you know, depression and a lot of antidepressants uh, deal with serotonin. And so it's interesting, the connection between the gut and what's going on in the brain. Very much so. And this is this is definitely like kind of a, a hot button thing in wellness right now. There's a lot of pretty interesting uh, science that's going on in that realm and some pretty cool books coming out about it. So so working out, uh, you were already athletic as a, a kid and a college student and everything. But to go from, you know, the staircase to doing an Ironman, to doing five Ironmans in seven days uh, – this seems to me like just incredible. Like, how did you, how did you, you know, well, two questions there really. A, how did you start training for this? How did you know you were going to start entering these competitions? And then B, where's the transition from lawyer to Ironman? So what happened was, uh, like I said, I just, I just started getting outside because I had all this added energy. And Again, no agenda. I mean, really, my only goal was I just wanted to lose this gut around my midsection. And I wanted to have – I wanted to be able to enjoy my kids at their energy level. So those are pretty simple, relatable goals. Uh, and I just started without any structure. You know, I bought a pair of running shoes. My wife bought me a bike for my 40th birthday. I'd never really owned a bike before. And just started, you know, kind of casually getting out there. You know, what started off as being able to only run for a half an hour, you know slowly started to grow to 45 minutes to an hour. And I went back to the pool for the first time in a long time. And on Saturdays, I'd go out and ride casually with some buddies of mine. Um, and, and I just felt like I was losing the weight really fast. And I, I felt like I was getting stronger really quickly. Um, and I kept thinking about that, that Hippocrates quote, you know, let food be thy medicine. And, and, and I was just still so astounded at the resiliency of the human body. And, and I think that that really kind of fueled this desire to, to question myself and say, well, just how resilient is it? Like, what am I really capable of? And then I had this experience where I, I was about four months into just this casual kind of fitness routine 
where I went out to go. It was a weekday morning and I went out to go for a run at this local trail near my house. And I was only going to run for about an hour. And I just had one of those days where everything lined up perfectly. And I just felt like I was in the zone and I just felt like I just had, I just felt like I could run forever, you know, and I just kept running and running and running. And that day I ended up running 24 miles, like wow. out of the blue. Uh, you know, I didn't what was the most you had ran, what was the most you had ever ran, ran uh, before? Maybe, you know, maybe eight or 10 miles or, you know, back when I was training as a swimmer, maybe eight miles or something like that. But so, nothing, so 25 you know, years or 22 years earlier. Yeah. It had been a long time since I, you know, I, I, I'd never done anything like that before. And, that was another kind of like watershed moment where I thought, you know, either I just unlocked some dormant gene that I didn't know that I had, or there's really something about this like plant-based way of eating and living that's agreeing with me in, in a way that I could not have foreseen. And, and that's really what, what rooted this idea of like trying to find a challenge. Like, let me see what I can do. Like, I can't believe I did this with, with barely, you know, any preparation. So what would happen if I actually set my sights on, on like a big goal? And knowing myself well enough, like I, I needed something that really scared me that would like get me out of bed in the morning and, and really lend structure and focus to my life. Uh, and I thought about doing an Ironman. I didn't know anything about Ironman or triathlons. I didn't re- you know, I went on the Ironman website and thought maybe I'll find one of those races. And I didn't realize that they all sell out like a year in advance. And, sure. you know, I just didn't, I was like, well, that's not happening this year. And then I ended up stumbling upon an article in a magazine about this race called Ultraman, which I'd never heard of. Uh, you know, as we said before, an Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike and a marathon. And, and I was reading this article about this race called Ultraman that's twice that distance. It's a three-day double Ironman distance triathlon that circumnavigates the entire Big Island of Hawaii, which is like the size of Connecticut. It's a big island. And over this three-day period, you traverse 320 miles. The first day is a 6.2-mile ocean swim. Then you get on your bike and you ride it 90 miles. And then the next day, you, you race your bike 170 miles. And then the third day, you run 52.4 miles, a double marathon, like on the Kona Coast, which is like super hot and you know, like unhospitable. And I'm reading this article and I just I'd never heard anything like that before in my life. I had no idea that human beings could actually do something like that. And I was just I was dumbfounded. But I was also fascinated, like I couldn't get it out of my head. And I and I just it was one of those things that made no logical sense, but Somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, I'm going to do that race. It didn't make any sense, but I just had this sense that that was where my life needed to kind of head. And you started and, training with like an account, kind of, I'll call it an accountability partner. Like you, you weren't just doing this by yourself. Well, originally I was just kind of out there tooling around on my own. Um, but what happened was, uh, you know, I set my sights on trying to get into this race and which seemed impossible because they only accept 35 um, hand-selected athletes. It's invitation only from around the world. Uh, and I had no credentials to be accepted to participate in something like this. But but I was able to leverage my lawyerly skills to be very convincing with the race director. And I hoodwinked her somehow into letting me into this race, uh, which is a whole other story. But once once I kind of got the green light and 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 was told, okay, you can do this, then 
I got to work and I hired a coach and I got real serious about what I was doing. I started to really research nutrition. I started to truly understand what I was going to have to do in order to show up at the starting line of this, you know, absurd endurance fest. And I had, I only had seven months to do it, which isn't very much time for something like this, particularly coming from where I was coming. And so, and I'm sorry, I don't know the full details of the story, but when did you stop being a lawyer in all of this? Oh, so I didn't. Meanwhile, I'm practicing law the whole time. Like, who are your clients Ed, so, while you're so doing this? Was, yeah. So what happened was, um, eventually, I left the big law firm, which was like a sort of a, a a baby step in my choose yourself adventure. Yes. And I started my own firm with two other guys. So I went from being accountable to a bunch of senior partners who wanted to know where I was every five minutes of every single day to to kind of being my own boss in an entrepreneurial sense. So I was still practicing law, but I had a lot more freedom than I had before, which meant that I could determine my daily schedule, which allowed me to incorporate my training into, into my day in a way that I wouldn't have been able to had I been working at a, in a traditional, you know, sort of corporation or law firm. Um, so that allowed me to, you know, basically take on training like it was a second job. Um, so I would train in the morning, I'd go work and then, you know, I would go out and train again. <laughs> you know, I started I, at, at its peak. I mean, I was training 25 or 30 hours a week. I mean, it was, it really was like a second job. And I can't tell you how many times I'd be out on a training ride on my bike in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I'd have to stop and do a conference call. Like I was sort of practicing law, you know, while I was training and I would think, you know, I'm negotiating some deal. Uh, and I was representing writers and directors and film producers and doing production legal on independent movies and things like that. Things that in the grand scheme of being a lawyer are actually pretty fun. Um, but I would think, you know, as I was talking to some, you know, talent agent on the phone on the side of the road in my cycling kit, thinking if this guy knew what I was actually doing right now, because he's assuming that I'm just in my office. Right. right? And uh, and that was kind of a tricky, you know, tightrope to walk for a while to make sure that I was getting all my work done and serving my clients and, you know, being responsible to them while also doing this other thing. So I actually didn't stop practicing law until Finding Ultra, my first book came out, which was in 2012. So it's coming up on three years. So I was practicing law for quite some time before I was really able to responsibly let go of it, you know, because being a provider for, you know, a family of six, you know, I, I, I had, you know, I have to, I gotta, I gotta bring home the bacon and, the kind of things that I'm doing now. Sort of uh, bring home the right. bacon. You want to yeah. right. bring home, home the bring opposite home the veggie, of bacon. The veggie bacon. Right. <laughs> right. So, so, so when the first book came out, uh, Finding Ultra, did that like basically make enough money you could retire as a lawyer? Absolutely not. You know, I mean, I did that. Um, it was my first book. I did it with Random House with Crown, and, and I got a pretty good advance for a first-time author. Uh, and if I was living in a cabin in the woods by myself, maybe I could have stretched out that money to make it last. And But, but you know, that money went pretty quick. And as you know, those, those checks come in installments. Yeah. So, you know, it seems like maybe it's a lot of money, but in truth, like it doesn't turn out to be as much as you think. And, and it allowed me a little bit of breathing room while I was writing the book, but it certainly, you know, wasn't anything that was going to allow me to, to sort of say, no, I'm not practicing law anymore. But what happened was when, when the, when Finding Ultra came out in 2012, I just said, this is my opportunity, uh, to really transition what my profession is going to be. And I can just sit back and let this book come out and do its thing and, 
and, you know, I'll still have to practice law or I can seize this opportunity and really use it to make the most out of it, to really get the book out there and, and, you know, leverage every single opportunity and create the most opportunities that I can out of it that will allow me to step into uh, what ultimately, you know, could become a new career that's sustainable for my family. Right. So I took that because, opportunity very seriously. Because just the diet and even the, the working out in the competitions, this, those are two things under a very big umbrella, which is this entire uh, nutrition space. And they established your credibility, but now it opens up the entire space to, to create a living and a career. For sure. And, you know, I think that a lot of people – you know, especially first-time authors, they have this idea that they write a book and that, that their life is going to magically change as a result of that. And I can tell you that you know, I worked harder on, on getting the book out there and trying to you know, exploit every nook and cranny to go around and speak where everybody, anybody would let me speak you know, for free, you know, financing it myself. Um, because you know, if you don't do that, your book's just going to come out and, and go away. Like You have to really um, seize the reins of that opportunity and make something happen with it. Otherwise, you know, it's just going to be another book that comes and goes. And, and so, so what did you do to kind of, uh, leverage the opportunity? You you have this, you only have this window once the book comes out. So, so how did you push it? Right. So I realized that, you know, my book, which is, you know, that book, which is essentially a memoir, it's my story, the story that I've been telling you today, but it's also got plenty of nutritional information and stuff about plant-based nutrition. And I realized that, you know, the vegan market uh, is, is a big market. And every summer there's veg fests all over the country uh, where they have speakers come in and they don't really pay you to do it, but you can go and you can talk about your book and you can meet people. And I just went on the road and I went to all of those um, and they're gr- and they're great because because you know the people that attend these buy lots of books and you know it was just a very gradual process of getting out there. You know, and, and you had extra credibility too from the fact that there there was this almost certified transformation that had happened. Like you were now competing in these Ironman competitions and doing very well in them, and you were getting all these awards and. The fittest yeah, so, man of this and the fittest guy of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and those are all very effective when you're trying to get a book out there or, you know, when you're trying to get your message across. But but I think, you know, you can't underestimate the amount of work that you have to shoulder yourself. I mean, anybody that would let me write a blog post, like I just churning out blog posts all over the place, any podcast that would let me come on and tell their story, like I just did as much as I could. And I said yes to everything. And, you know, now I'm in a, uh, you know, a favored position of, of now I have to say no to a lot of stuff, which wasn't the case when it first began. And that's kind of the evolution of how these things work. Well, you know, Rich, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and telling the story. Um, I could go over and ask you detailed questions about the, the recipes, but I, I, I honestly think people should just buy the book and, all the information's there. Like they, they, we've heard your story. The recipes look great. We're going to be making them. The book's called The Plant Power Way, Whole Food Plant-Based Recipes and Guidance for the Whole Family. Comes out April 28th. Um, and again, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story with us. Thanks, James. I really appreciate it. If I could just say one thing about the book. I mean, I, I, want, I want to make sure people understand this is not – just a book for vegans. This is really, we wrote this book to have broad appeal to speak to the average modern American family. You know, I think parents 
you know, they want to, people out there want to do the right thing. They want to eat healthy. And, and most importantly, they want, they want their kids to be healthy. You know, they, they want better information about how to cultivate healthy habits in their children. And so on top of all the recipes in the book, there's a lot of lifestyle guidance, uh, tips and tools and resources and kind of opinion pieces about, you know, how we did it and, and how it can be, you know, accessible for you. So, yeah. And, and I think uh, you're, you're right to bring that up. And I think also the recipes that I, what I was most nervous about is that the recipes would look bad, <laughs> but <laughs> they actually look good, like super soul food pancakes Hash browns tower, uh, chia seed pudding. Like, I'm excited to try these things. And then particularly when you described kind of the nutritional benefits of all the ingredients, which is obviously not found in the average cookbook, it really uh, uh, got me excited. So uh, I'm really yeah. excited to try this. They're hearty and they're delicious. This is not precious gourmet stuff. This is just you know, food that Americans like to eat. And they were, these recipes were developed by us. I mean, my, they're all easy to make. I mean, my wife, you know, she's a genius in the kitchen, but she's not going to spend all day in the kitchen. And when she sits down to make a dinner, she's like, what am I going to make that's going to, you know, when Rich gets back from his training session is going to satisfy him, but something that our kids are going to eat too. Like it's got to work. It's got to be sustainable. You know, it's got to, it's got to work within the construct of our busy lives. And I think that's, you know, the key. And that was kind of one of the themes that we really wanted to try to uh, make sure that we held true to. So, so honestly, though, if you ate, I mean, I, I'm the type of person I could eat this morning porridge that you mentioned three uh-huh. or three or four times a day, every day. <laughs> like, are you saying, would that be bad for me if I just did that every day? I don't know. Well, I don't know what you're doing now. Maybe it's better than what you're doing now, James. I, you know, I don't eat that bad right now. I, I tend to be I'll just tell you, two meals a day and really no meat, occasional fish, but uh, more slightly pescatarian, you know, is fish based. And then I do a lot of avocado and low on carbs. I, I tend to eat okay, but this looks better. It's, it's going to be good for you. How about Claudia? She's on, the, she's on point, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, she, she makes everything for me. I haven't been in a kitchen in like 20 years. So. <laughs> well, here's, here's what we're going to do. The next time you're in Los Angeles, you're going to come over to our house and we're going to make you an amazing meal and you're never going to look back. Excellent. Well, I I look forward to it. Well, once again, Rich, thanks so much and I will talk to you soon. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and 
starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.